0: Let's face it, trying to find work today is tougher than ever. And if you're a company that's hiring, finding the right candidate can be a challenge as well. That's why we've relaunched our job board to help you find your next opportunity. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, we've got a list of remote gigs, so listen up. Tiller is looking for a UX UI designer. Rejoy is looking for a senior UX designer. Skynova Inc. is looking for a UI UX visual designer. JLS Trading Co. is looking for a junior designer. Power Home Remodeling is looking for a Ruby on Rails developer. And lastly, Constructive is looking for a production designer. So for just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days And we'll help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings as well as others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual based freelance life with no non competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. But in order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Kevin Tufts. Kevin is a multidisciplinary artist who has been a longtime UX designer. He's worked at eBay, he's worked at SendGrid, at Workday, and at Twilio. Currently, he's a product designer at Meta in San Jose, California. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: Hi, I am uh, Kevin Tufts. I am a product designer currently working at Facebook, and I live in San Jose, California.
0: How has this year been treating you so far?
1: I'd say personally, the year has been pretty good. I am grateful to be employed, and you know, obviously, you've seen in the media that uh, Meta has had several waves of layoffs, unfortunately. So, all things considered, I I feel pretty grateful. I feel pretty good, but a little anxious. I'm human, so. it's definitely some wild times, not just within Meta, but the tech ecosystem as a, as a whole.
0: Yeah. Do you have any plans for the summer? Plans for the summer
1: are going to be pretty chill. Uh, so one of my side hobbies is I'm an avid cyclist. So I've been doing bike events from beginning of April up until just a couple of weeks ago. So this summer, I think I'm just going to chill, stay local and, and got some family stuff happening. I uh, got some folks coming into town. So it should be a, a hopefully a quiet summer.
0: Nice. That's good. Is there anything in particular that you want to try to like accomplish this year? Like for the rest of the year?
1: Yeah. There's some kind of like more career oriented things that I want to sharpen up on. And that's uh with mentorship and maybe doing more design oriented workshops where I'm teaching kids from, you know, different backgrounds, but mostly from people of color how to use design tools and, and how to get into you know product design as a whole.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a really good thing, especially now when I'd say I feel like over the past two or three years, we've started to see a lot of the younger generation like Gen Z and younger are starting to look at tech more as a viable opportunity for them to go into for their career. So that's a good thing. I hope you get a chance to do that.
1: Yeah, looking forward to uh, there's a couple avenues and programs that I've been working with here in the Bay Area. That's been awesome. So yeah, there's some big things on the horizon for me personally.
0: Nice. Talk to me about the work that you're doing at Facebook. Like, are you working on a specific product there?
1: Yeah, mostly working within what's called creation. And that's the org organization that handles a lot of our creation tools like Reels and Stories. And so for me, a lot of my work swirls around Stories. So I get to touch everything from the gallery to the Stories Composer, just the Experience itself, which has been pretty cool. And then I also work across Facebook Lite, iOS, and Android. And I call that out because, uh, you know, most people that are listening that are here within the US may not be aware that we have such an app uh, called Facebook Lite, but it's a stripped down version of the app that runs on Android and it's a popular app in kind of like more developing
0: nations. Mm. So, like, if you're using, say, like, a, I <laughs> I know there's this, this terminology of a dumb phone as opposed to like a smartphone, but, But like a phone that's not, you know, maybe always connected to the internet.
1: You got it. Yeah, you nailed it. So there's different flavors of that where you can go into low data mode and then you'll see, you know, almost just a a very plain Jane, uh, just a few images and some text, Uh, just a stripped down version of, of the core app.
0: What does your team look like that you work with?
1: Team is pretty big. So within the organization, there are different pillars that handle different aspects of the experience. I'm on the creation growth team. So we run tons of design experiments. It's a really fast-moving, fast-paced org. It can be challenging, but really fun, as you get to try you know, all types of different unique uh, design directions that you wouldn't necessarily try in other products or spaces around Meta. And what, we have uh, quite a, a number of designers as well. So,
0: Now, what does a, a regular day kind of look like for you? Are you like working remotely? Are you back in the office now? Like, What does that look like?
1: Yeah, I'm working remotely. And just recently, like most companies in the Bay, we have a new return to office policy. So a lot of us will be continuing to work remotely. And some of us that live here in the Bay are going to be going in three days a week.
0: So you would have to be going into the the Menlo Park office then?
1: Yeah, that's my closest uh, office.
0: That's, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to place the Bay geography, like how like how far away is that from where you're at in San Jose?
1: Oh, yeah, it's about a 20-minute 20 drive, 25 minutes. I mean, it takes oh, a lot okay. longer because of traffic. Yeah, it's okay, that's not
0: that bad. That's not that, that bad. At all. Yeah, the last time I was in San Francisco was in, God, when, oh, that was 2016. Actually, it was 2016. I, I spoke at Facebook, and I remember it took, oh, wow. I think it took an hour to get from San Francisco to Menlo Park, and I was thinking, people make this commute <laughs> every day. This is yep. a lot.
1: <laughs> an hour sounds uh that, that sounds great compared to uh you know doing like an hour and a half or two hours if there's an accident.
0: <laughs> yeah. I want to approach this this part of the conversation rather gingerly. I feel like there's a third rail that I really don't want to touch <laughs> with regards to Facebook, but What's the mood like there right now? I mean, as you mentioned, they've been in the news recently. Also, they've been in the news recently because of like conversations around the metaverse. The MetaQuest 3 just dropped fairly recently. And then right after that, Apple dropped their AR headset. Like, what's, what's the mood like? Yeah. What's the mood like at Facebook?
1: Overall, I think because of the frequency of the layoffs, you know, we went into the end of last year with the first uh, big wave. And then we just had the the two more recent ones. People, they seem to be resilient, but you know, a lot of us are kind of reserved and, and really just a little numb because all of this stuff has been in such close succession. Right. So ultimately, you know, everyone is just kind of moving forward and performing their duties as they always would. I think a lot of us are just trying to like ride this out because we know that it's going to be challenging for you know at least quite a few number of months before the dust truly settles. And and after every large layoff, you know, at any company, then there's always the you know the tremors that you experience, right? Because you'll have a series of reorgs. So then you have to ride those waves, and so that's kind of where we are right now. But for the most part, you know, everyone is pushing forward and. We're now into roadmap planning season. So it's like we're our minds are occupied with just trying to plan for the next half.
0: Yeah. It can be a very odd place to still work somewhere after a layoff. Like sometimes you have I guess the best way to call this or the best thing to call it would be survivor's guilt. That you're here when maybe a team member has left or someone else you knew at the company has left. And then especially when these kinds of things happen in succession like that, you're like it can almost kind of feel a bit like you're walking on eggshells, I guess.
1: Yeah. In some regards, it's exactly like that because this is also impacting our performance reviews, right? Yeah. So you know, a lot of us engineers as well, or you've been working on a project or, you know, maybe you've been reorged. So now the, the work that you had going on, you had to drop it midstream to go pick up something else from someone else's team. And
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: it's chaotic. And so there's the stress of like, hey, how is my performance review going to look? That's just kind of like where we are. It's like, you can only worry about what you can control. And I guess we'll cross that bridge. we all get there.
0: Yeah. Now, for those of us who have been online for a very long time, when I say that at least, you know, 20 years or so, we remember when Facebook launched. Facebook launched in like the early 2000s, like 2003, 2003, 2004, I think right around that time. And we're now about to come up on Facebook's twentieth anniversary, which is wild to think of for an internet company. What do you think like Facebook's place is now in this kind of modern internet era that we're in?
1: Well, obviously we've tried to well, I shouldn't say try, but we've entered the the VR space. So I don't see that going away anytime soon. But I think what we'll start to head is maybe putting more development and focus into AI things as everybody is sort of racing to get there wherever there is. So we may have more of a shift towards AI oriented experiences and less attention on the metaverse. And then obviously just kind of moving forward with the ultimate goal of just having a totally connected planet, right? And what I noticed between the US and just working on things that will be tested in other countries is that here in the US, the way the media spins things is that, you know, oh, well, it's, Facebook's dying. And it's 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 really just kind of how the media frames things, but it's not. It's like the popularity of the app has not really dipped and it's actually increasing outside of the U.S. market. And then within the U.S. market, there's quite a number of unique things that I, I think we're going to be able to latch onto and, and really just kind of like shock the general public.
0: Sort of reminds me of that saying about like the the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated or something like that. I think Mark I think Mark Twain said that probably. I mean with with a company as big as Facebook that has a global reach like that, you know, I get what you're saying about the media like tech media here or even the more mainstream outlets here will make it seem like oh, you know, Facebook is this like big dying site, but like Facebook is still the number one website in the world. And the That's world right. is a big place. It's not just the US. I mean, the U.S., the U.S. media scene, the U.S. tech scene, et etc. Like Facebook has not only just Facebook, the social network, but Instagram and WhatsApp. And like there's other apps and things that are out there in the world that are heavily used. So to say that like Facebook is dying feels kind of premature just because it has a reach that eclipses so many other products, so many other companies like it's a lot bigger, I think, than we might think that it is based on what the media might say.
1: It is. And we don't think about a lot of the other sub products, right? We have groups, which is the communities based product within the app is extremely popular Mm -hmm. Uh, messenger. We've got our foot in so many different pools right now that, you know, it's really just kind of like the media, the U S focused media. That's always basically picking on the company.
0: Right. And I mean, folks that have listened to this show for any period of time, know I am not a Facebook fan. I'm not going to say I'm a Facebook hater, but like you can't (laughs) knock the fact that Facebook has It's got its reach at a lot of different places across a lot of different products. And so just the social network itself is not the entirety of what Facebook is about. That's right. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I never thought that I would be working here. And now that I've been here almost three years, I could definitely see both sides of the the coin, especially Mm -hmm. in terms of how like the media positions things. But also, rightfully so, you know, we have a huge trust deficit that we're continuing to try to improve. But it's a hard mountain to climb, especially after the the waves of layoffs that um, we've just seen and some of the initiatives that like the integrity teams have been cut. It's tough right? and it yeah. takes time. And unfortunately, things move faster than, you know, we can react to So,
0: And, you know, some of those things are not even in Facebook's control, like the things that happen with like workforce reduction and things. A ton exactly. of tech companies are doing that because they're looking at like the economy and seeing. Is the country going into a recession? So they're trying to sort of react and pivot to what might happen. Like you're trying to forecast the future here. So I think the longer a tech company, and I'd say this is any company, not just tech companies. I think tech companies are specific in this case because they span so many different industries outside of just like software development or whatever. But Mm -hmm. the longer a tech company sticks around and almost feels like the more issues people will find with it. One way or another, the companies are going to mess up. They're going to inadvertently say something or inadvertently do something or maybe purposely say something or do something like the longer a tech company sticks around. It feels like I'm a math guy. So if if I think of like the duration of a tech company as like the limit of a function, it's like as the limit approaches zero or wherever the like the end of the company is, you know, so to speak, things are going to happen. Things are just going to happen because Social media influences culture, and that influences technology. And so what might have been good five years ago is no longer good now. And if there's one thing that's going to be constant, it's change. And I think when a tech company sticks around long enough, unfortunately, they're going to possibly come up on the short end of the stick when it relates to that.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely.
0: Okay, enough pontificating on my part. (laughs) (laughs) love it. (laughs) Let's turn this back on you. Let's learn more about you and about your journey as a designer in tech. I want to, you know, really take this back to the beginning here. So so talk to me about where you grew up.
1: So I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, the town and city known for LeBron James and its river catching on fire in the 1970s and terrible sports, right? (laughs) So that's where I was born. And right around the time I turned like eight or nine is when I moved to Southern California. So I have a, a big group of large group of family in Ohio. And then I have the family base in Southern California, between the LA and Orange County area.
0: Okay. Were you exposed to a lot of like design and technology growing up?
1: Yeah. So I was fortunate growing up that my dad he was a, a computer guy, so I had a computer in the house growing up, which is completely rare, especially for the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my dad, coming out of Vietnam, he was in a program that taught him how to work on mainframes. So when he got out of Viet- you know the military. He ended up landing a job in downtown Cleveland at one of the, you know, it's really just kind of like a storage company, I guess you would say. I remember going to work with him and like the one computer took up the entire room and there's these big reels and tapes. And yeah, I've always been exposed to tech stuff. And he was also like a big science fiction guy. And between having a computer in the house and then playing games at the arcade at the mall and, you know, just really watching science fiction flicks with him, there's no surprise that I ended up doing what I'm doing today as for a career.
0: Mm. Now, you went to Cleveland State University um, where you majored in design. I'm curious, before that, did you know that design was something that you really wanted to study?
1: Yeah. So by the time I went to Cleveland State, and it was a total fluke because I moved to Ohio uh, for other reasons. And while I was there, you know, it looked like I was going to stay for a few years. I'd just come from Southern California, I went to Ohio, and got myself enrolled in university because I wanted to make sure I didn't have any huge lapse in time to get my education out of the way. By that time I had already been doing like freelance things like I was pretty much thinking I was going to be a print designer around that time, so the late 90s, mm-hmm. probably around like 96 97 is when I had thought, okay, yeah, I'll get into graphic design. At the time I didn't even know it was called graphic design. <laughs> but I was <laughs> uh I was always the the kid at high school doing the like hip hop flyers, uh, a lot of flyers for open mics, raves. And so it was like the the starter The inkling of me becoming a designer was back in those days, doing like bootleg flyers.
0: (laughs) Yeah, those early print days back then were something else. I mean, just the the (laughs) amount of creativity that you had, even though the medium itself was, you know, sort of fairly limited. I mean, that was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, do something like really weird on the computer and then print it out. And then I would take some markers and then do something on top of that. So it'd be like this multi-medium like flyer thing cut stuff out, paste it on and then Xerox it again. Like it Kinkos, goes all that kind of stuff. Nice. Using quark express.
0: <laughs> oh man. Quark express. <laughs> I just had someone on recently and we were sort of talking about those early days with like page maker and, yeah. and Quark, and trying to figure all that stuff out. Because I remember quark specifically, uh, cause I used that along with PageMaker to mm-hmm. design my high school newspaper. And like wow. the instruction manual that it came with could like choke a horse. Like, <laughs> That thing was huge. And you had No one wanted
1: to read that stuff.
0: Nobody was reading through all that. Like this is like way before online documentation. I mean, this thing <laughs> came with a brick of an instruction manual that you had to go through. And I'm like, I have to know all of this just to use this software. It almost didn't feel like it was worth it. Right.
1: <laughs>
0: oh wow. <laughs> now, while you were in college, you were also a working designer too. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so I uh, went to college. I was probably in my mid twenties. So basically, I thought I had the world figured out because after high school, I didn't go straight away to college, and mm-hmm. that's when a lot of like my high school friends and people around me were just getting hired out of high school to you know just do HTML and build some wacky website. So I followed that path, and then when the dot com bubble burst, uh, it was a hefty smack in the face of, of reality. So that's kind of like what got me into Cleveland State. But by that time, yeah, I was working for eBusiness Express, which is a web hosting company. So I was very fortunate. I was already kind of knowing my destiny, you know, what I needed to do, where I wanted to go. And then I was also like in practice where other students in the class were just kind of like figuring out what Illustrator is or Photoshop.
0: EBusiness Express is like a quintessential 90s online business <laughs> Right. right, Yeah. <laughs> what what kind of stuff? were E-hyphen. <laughs> right. The E-hyphen. Exactly. What, what kind of stuff were you doing there? I started off as a Linux server
1: admin. So I wasn't even doing like design stuff. But what I was doing that was valuable was um, because it's a web hosting company is now I understand like how things work behind the scenes, like how websites function. So I had that foundation of like a, I guess you would say a webmaster at that time. That's what it was
0: mm-hmm.
1: considered. But yeah, just understanding like how DNS works for your, your web, you know, www, your your web domain, registering names, taking servers offline, like really like heady stuff, but I enjoyed it. I, it fulfilled like a side of me that I really like to tinker and, and explore things and just being a, a Linux admin that it, it did it for me. But then it also gave me access to kind of like host my own little like microsites and really just like enable certain things on the server that people just don't have access to you, right? Or if you're designing a website, you're certainly not thinking about uploading things on the command line and just really kind of Star Trek stuff. (laughs) At that time, that's how I treated it.
0: Well, I mean, also, you know, the thing back then is a lot of that stuff around web hosting was very opaque. Like you almost had to be a command line or a terminal coder to know how to really get around because the Graphical user interface, or the GUI, I guess what we called it back then. Like the GUIs were just not super user friendly to that point. So you did have to know, like maybe how to telnet, or you know how to use a, or like use a Linux command in order to change the permissions on a directory. Like you couldn't just click a button or something to make that happen.
1: That is a great point. Yeah, in the early days, it wasn't for everyone. Like you definitely had to have some technical prowess in order to upload a file. <laughs> or yeah. to get your, your web address, like get it all working, you know, pull up a page.
0: I remember I was in high school in like the late 90s and <laughs> I remember even doing FTP stuff and uh, <laughs> and being told at the time, I think maybe one of my teachers that told me, it's like, oh, so you're hacking, you're a hacker now. I'm like, this is not... It's not hacking, like it's it's just FTP. But because because they don't see any graphics, all they see is just code. Because you know this was like Mm -hmm. right before the Matrix, or right (laughs) Matrix came out in ninety nine. I remember because I was a freshman in college. It came out in ninety nine, and yeah, all that stuff about FTP and and oh my god, yeah, it was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Right,
1: Right, it's only context like you know the common man had like it was like some science fiction movie. But and then you think about it's really like quite. Like,
0: simple stuff. <laughs> yeah. And in, in hindsight, when you look back at it, it definitely is simple stuff. But, yeah, during that time, just knowing how to do some of that sort of stuff, like, mm-hmm. people thought you were, uh, like, a magician or something.
1: Yeah, like, oh, you can right.
0: You can make a website. You can put a picture of yourself online. <laughs> like, how do you do that? You know, like, it's – and even what does online mean? Because the concept of being online in the 90s, like, mid to late 90s is such mm-hmm. – a different thing than now because social media didn't exist so for you like do you remember what that time was like for you
1: yeah it was a whole new world uh, and it felt like there wasn't much online to look at but i do remember like in the early days you had to work hard to make friends so forums were real big you know the irc channels so forums mm-hmm. and chats so aim or you know instant messenger yahoo chat i remember all those different like worlds and rooms and just Whatever your your interest was, you would just go out into that forum or chat find your folks. And then it was just kind of like, not even instant replies, especially in the forum. You know, you, you go in there, you chat it up, and then maybe 24 hours later, you got a response. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that stuff was amazing. I remember downloading my first video, and it was a clip of a race car. It was like a drag strip. It was a 30-second clip. And I think it took like an hour and a half, maybe even two hours for that 30-second clip to download. So that I could watch it over my 56K or whatever the modem was at the time. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it was just such a cool adventure and tinkering around with HTML and doing all the corny stuff like, you know, making the animated tickers. And yeah, it was the wild, wild west. And I I loved every bit of it, but it definitely took some patience. And, you know, you had to work hard for anything that you wanted to do on the net.
0: Going back to eBusiness Express for a minute. I mean, you worked there for almost eight years When you look back at that time, what do you remember the most? I remember
1: that it really helped me understand how, you know, the web functions and uh, everything that's needed for standing up a business. Because eBusiness Express also specialized in helping medium, like small to medium-sized businesses get set up online to sell. So it also gave me experience working within the realm of e-commerce. And then while working there, you know, I worked there for eight years and part of that was because... The first few years I spent doing Linux admin stuff before I moved into becoming a, a full blown just web designer for the company. So I'd switch roles and the back end of my tenure there is what gave me experience with like design, working with clients. So working more in like an agency style format mm-hmm. is where I cut my teeth as a, I guess you'd say a traditional web designer before moving into product.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that uh, that shift after eBusiness Express. You kind of started your career as a product designer at .NET Nuke, which now is known as DNN. It's how can I explain .NET Nuke? It's a content management system. I have like minimal experience with it. I worked with it like briefly at WebMD and just thinking like, how could someone make software so convoluted and
1: confusing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well summarized.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Tell me about your time there.
1: Yeah, so the company is very unique because, as you said, it's a CMS, and we had a lot of big government contracts, and there's some educational institutions as well. And it was, you know, I'm trying to think of how to compare it. It may be like a behemoth compared to WordPress. WordPress was really easy to get up and running, but there is a large community for .NET Newt and primarily ran on Windows. So then you've got the IIS crowd of folks that are into it. So you got the engineer side, a lot of developers that supported the community. And then you also have the support side, because there's a lot of folks that were spinning up businesses around like installations and helping you to get up and running on DNN. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also had those services as well. And then for me, it was awesome because it was my first foray into like product thinking and product design. So, when I worked at the company, we had, I think, three designers. Two of them were in marketing, I believe, and just one product design person that did like everything, it was like the jack of all trades. But it was really cool. This is the first time getting experience with like a design system, where at that time we had a sticker sheet. So, working in that capacity and then also like working on product features. So, where I've kind of come from, more or less building websites that are catering to businesses to sell online. Now I've moved into kind of like more enterprise software and a lot of the like nuances of like working within like these product spaces and different product features and how to plan accordingly and doing a light amount of like user research to the community, things like that. So kind of like entry level crash course into product design.
0: Now, was it a big shift from e-business express? I mean, you're going from this web hosting environment where you said you were in the back half of your time there, doing mm-hmm. design to now focusing on product, which I feel like during that time, if we're talking like the early 2010s, product was still kind of a new, new-ish sort of term in a way. Like, did you yeah. know what a product designer was when you started there?
1: No, because I think around that time also we were still seeing on job listings UI UX. We were seeing like a myriad of job titles that meant the same thing, like visual Mm -hmm. designer or UI UX and product designer. So when I moved out to the Bay Area, I had to kind of wrap my head around like, okay, I'm seeing these titles, but the job description is just a product design role, interaction designer even. And then the description would be nothing more than just like a product design role. So yeah, it took a while to kind of figure out what the companies were looking for. And then also, what did that mean? Like, what are the job functions that are necessary for me to be successful?
0: Mm. Yeah, there was definitely a shift in the industry right around that time where web designers, graphic designers, visual designers just suddenly started becoming product designer, UX Mm -hmm. designer. And I mean, that's something even I've encountered now. Like if I tell people I'm a designer, I feel like nine times out of 10, they're going to think that means a UX designer. And I'm like, oh, actually, I haven't done UX design, maybe not in the way that they're thinking it but like i feel like that shift just kind of happened was that something that you noticed also
1: yeah i did notice it naturally sorted itself out cuz prior to that I, I guess in our era we kind of came up around the time where you're expected to know all these different things you had to be a visual designer uh, also flash was pretty big too so it's like you had to know flash and then you had to <laughs> oh know God. some programming languages right like you, yeah. there are all these things and i was also a front end Developer at EVIST Express. So I did a lot of the integration work as well. And when I came to the Bay Area, I still had that mindset that I had to be a jack of trades and know all these things. And then I was noticing that there were actually specialized roles now. Like, no longer are we living in the day and age where they're expecting you to be a webmaster. Like, I hated that that term and see that. <laughs> it's like you have to know Java, JavaScript, and C. Like, there was all these back end languages that were on our job description roles when you just want to use, uh, Photoshop.
0: <laughs> yeah. When I worked at AT&T as a designer, I think my title was just web designer. But we were doing yeah. web design. We were doing graphic design. We were mm-hmm. doing front-end design because we had to, you know, of course, like build, like actually build the whole thing from scratch. And this was at the time when layout switched from tables to CSS. So you had to learn that oh, yeah. with all the different cross-browser compatibility, especially with ie six. <laughs> um, and yeah, we had to know like a little bit of flash actually we used, oh my God, do you remember swish? Yeah. <laughs> I remember swish. Yeah. <laughs> swish was like flash light, I guess it wasn't made by macro media, which Adobe ended up buying, but like, it was a yep. totally different company called swish. And like, it was a more, I guess, sort of user-friendly interface to make flash animation. But like, we had to know flash, we had to know, like a little bit of Java because we, and I mean like actual Java, not JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Ironically, yep. we didn't have to know JavaScript, but we had to know Java because we would do these like web audio applet things. And so we had to know how to troubleshoot <laughs> the applet. So like this is one position, yeah. graphic design, web design, Flash, Java. <laughs> and like you're also sometimes doing some debugging of other people's stuff. Like it was a yep. lot into one particular title. And I feel like now that's five different jobs at a company.
1: <laughs> you know? <laughs>
0: yeah. After your time at .NET Nuke, like you worked for a lot of other companies out in the Bay area. You worked for, I'm, I'm listing off your work day, eBay, SendGrid, Twilio. Before Facebook, you were at Lyft for a short period of time. When you look back at those positions, like collectively, like what stands out to you? Do you remember any, any like particular things?
1: Yeah. I remember at DNN had an amazing time there. And I felt like that was the Kickstarter to my like official tech career in the Bay and just getting my feet wet with engineering teams. Uh, Cause we had a team of yeah roughly like a hundred engineers or so. And so that was the first time going from like a small web shop where there's, three developers and they're, they're within like arm's reach to now I've got to like talk to in leads and have these like presentation reviews. So that was kind of like the world that I was living in at DNN. And then when I moved over to Workday, that was my experience into the world of like enterprise software and really how to work within the confines of a design system. Coincidentally enough, I worked on the internal tools team. So that was really unique to be on the team that has to essentially vet and take in requests from other product areas and different components that may need to be built or reviewed to see if there's any like efficacy to having eng spend up resources to bring to life and then also working across different time zones so workday you know was amazing and having to work with engineering teams in ireland and i've also got a couple trips to europe out of that as well so can't complain with that the design culture at workday at the time was growing. So design hadn't been around at Workday for too long before I got there. I think maybe like a couple of years at the most. So we had a young but super talented design team that was working at Workday at that time. Research, I just want to call that out as well. So we did have a, a few research partners that were at Workday. So that was my first time interacting with research other than me standing up some like guerrilla survey or just doing kind of like personal research on my own.
0: hmm
1: Living from Workday. So I left Workday and went to eBay, and eBay was awesome because I met some incredible people and I'm still friends with a lot of them to this day. Uh, eBay was just a special time in my career where I was able to, you know, again, work at a massive company, work on different product spaces. And also, you know, I'm an avid eBay user. So I came in with, you know, some personal knowledge of how the product works because some people that work at eBay, they don't necessarily use the product. I too, the same thing is probably like for a meta as well, right? Which probably is problematic. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I actually used the thing that I worked on. So that was really, really cool. Several opportunities to travel throughout Europe, uh, mostly Germany. And eBay was close to home. So I didn't have that long commute like a lot of folks in the Bay Area. So that, that fulfilled. <laughs> like, my mood was incredible back then and then transitioning from eBay this is where things get interesting so i ended up in a company called SendGrid and SendGrid is kind of like an api communications company more around the like email marketing space really really powerful tool a lot of companies use it today it's kind of like the rival to mailchimp for anyone that's not familiar with SendGrid mm-hmm. so if you know mailchimp that's basically what SendGrid is and SendGrid was acquired by a company called Twilio so that's how i ended up at Twilio was through an acquisition when the acquisition took place SendGrid had a very mature, a young but mature design organization, and Twilio was engineering centric. So they really did not have design. And I think literally there may have been like four designers, four product designers there at the time of the acquisition. Funny story. I'd actually interviewed with Twilio uh, before the acquisition, maybe like a half a year prior to that, mm-hmm. and got an offer decided that wasn't quite where I wanted to be you know, in my career because I wanted to go somewhere that had a mature design organization. And I didn't want to go somewhere where it's just, you kind of have to fight for your seat at the table. So I seen some things at that time during the interview process that, you know, the folks were incredible. They were great, but I'm like, ah, you know, maybe I'll pass. So I ended up going to Syngrid and I kid you not on my first day, my first day in the office with my team and our first team meeting, we got an announcement to, uh, you know, basically shut our laptops and we need to received some news and the news was that we had been acquired by Twilio. So the company wow. I ran from was the company that ended up, <laughs> ended up acquiring me. They got me anyway. So I was the most expensive hire like <laughs> like ever.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Yeah, so the wrap things up, Twilio was just an interesting time. PDs were basically working across like anywhere from Four to nine PMs at a time. I think I had eight that I was reporting to. So it was pretty chaotic, but at least you were shipping work like daily. We didn't have enough design resources. And also, it was challenging because I mentioned that Syncret had a mature design culture and organization. So when we came in with a lot of our like process oriented things and checkpoints with like design briefs, which is necessary, especially in like large, fast moving companies. We were trying to get the company to slow down so that we can improve the quality versus just kind of like PM coming up with an idea and it's just building it. And if it doesn't work, oh, well, we wanted to kind of like move away from that mantra and more towards like being design led. So tiny bit of friction around there, but ultimately, you know, they're getting to where they need to be and lift I know I've done such a tour of duty here in the Bay Area.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it finally it's gonna stop now. But Lyft, I would say Lyft was a cherry on top for my career. It fulfilled so many things that I had been looking for. Where like, I want to move fast, ship quality work, have a mature design organization and mature design system. Right, you don't ever have to worry about what's real, what's not real, what's in flight. Our design systems team at Lyft, product teams, everyone was just incredible to, to work with. And so I worked on the community safety team, my short stint at Lyft. And the team that I worked on was unique because we got to wedge ourselves in between different product spaces without actually being a full-fledged member of the team. So I got to work on the driver app and the rider app. And then there's some kind of like unique things around the rental car space, which is fleet. So there's a lot of like interesting work, and because it wasn't a massive company, you could move fast. There was a researcher embedded on my team, so it was almost like biweekly. We were testing things, and I just loved it. So I didn't have to worry about the design system. Inevitably, when you're working on a thing, sometimes like it's just not you're not working with a system that's flexible enough to adhere to your needs and what you're trying to solve. But while working with Lyft, I didn't have to worry about all that. I just worried about the experience itself, and everything else just fell into place. But the pandemic, pandemic is what got me to Meta. So when the pandemic hit and no one was going anywhere, no one's driving, no one's riding, I'm watching my colleagues like almost weekly, like different goodbye emails that are going out and it just, it was a wild place to be in. You know, it was the year that everything seemed to have melt, melted down. So out of self-preservation and, and a need for not legit thinking the company was going to go over, I ended up making the jump over to Meta. So mm. I'll stop there. <laughs> and then that's the whole the whole transition to where I am today.
0: No, like you said, that is quite a tour of duty. One question I think that really stands out among all of that is like, how have you seen product design change over the years? Like I imagine from company to company, it's probably fairly similar because you're working on like software products. I mean, Lyft is, well, I guess you could say Lyft is it's software, but it's transportation as well. But like, how have you seen product design change over the years since you first started?
1: The tooling, I would definitely say in terms of ease of collaboration, that is one of the the biggest things that I've seen change and then the tooling itself. So now that we've got these robust prototyping tools, it's so much easier to demonstrate the design and, and the experience that you're working on without having to know like some hardcore programming languages like Back in the day, it was like you had to know JavaScript or jQuery just to, you know, maybe animate a a dropdown, right? Or you may have had some ideas around something fancy that you wanted to do. Maybe you wanted to have a side drawer appear on a a website. But, you know, in order to do those things, you had to know a programming language or just mock it up in After Effects, which is also tedious. So I would say just the sheer volume of of tools and and, in the collaboration space and prototyping is just incredible.
0: There's another podcast that I produce. I'm not going to mention the name of it, but there's another show that I produce. And one of the things that we have been exploring through that, that I feel like is also relevant to our conversation, is like just how much the browser has become a tool in and of itself. Like The browser used to just be about presentation. You made a website or something like that. You put it online, whatever. But now, as the browsers have gotten savvier, as different frameworks have been created and such, the browser itself is such a tool to the point where there's services now that only exist in a browser. They don't exist as standalone software, like a an executable file or something like that. You know, like Figma, you can do full-fledged graphic design all within your browser. And like 10 years ago, that would have almost been unheard of, you know?
1: It is mind-blowing to do that in a browser, like through Figma. You know, you've got these other tools like uh, Webflow and I'm trying to think of some other ones that are out there. Canva. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just totally jealous of the new designers, by the way. Like <laughs> every time these tools come out and I have to interact with them, and I'm just like, wow, I really couldn't use this back in the day when I had maybe a hundred buttons that I need to make a change on. And I had to go touch every hundred, you know, so <laughs> <a> component.
0: <laughs> Listen, modern designers will never know. The pain of cross-browser compatibility they will never understand how much of a pain in the ass it was to try to get one design to look the same across different versions of internet explorer and firefox and opera Opera oh my god (laughs)
1: safari 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 yeah behavioral things Yeah. yeah six through eight were probably like the nightmares Six and seven, for sure.
0: Yeah, for a while, I know there was like a whole cottage industry around basically browser emulators. Because like if you were on Windows, of course, you couldn't like really use Safari. You'd have to use, I mean, the Windows version of Safari you could use, but it didn't even render the same between Windows and Mac. And so (laughs) you had this software that you'd use that could, you know, hopefully reliably Looked the same between everywhere. And you had, you know, these little HTML shivs you had to do to yep. make certain <laughs> properties work. It was, man, it was a jungle out there. And it's only <laughs> like 10, 10, or plus, 10 or so years ago. You know, it was wild.
1: Yeah, yeah not that, that long, long ago. ago. Uh, when I was at New Business Express, we bought a dedicated iMac for that very reason, so that we could run like all the browsers on the Mac to see how they were responding as well. It just, <laughs> I, I, it's like, I don't miss those days, but I am so grateful that I, I got to experience it.
0: <laughs> right. No, absolutely. Cause I mean, I think, you know, there's certain skills I think that you build because of that, you know, like being able to really debug and even to sort of refactorize your own code that you're doing because you know that if you do it this other way it's going to look bad in this browser so now you sort of learn all these little eccentricities and stuff like that so now things are pretty standardized between the browser i feel like and you know i haven't done front end in a while but i feel like things are pretty standardized now between like the modern browsers like edge safari chrome firefox are pretty much going to render things pretty much the same
1: Yep. And I think a lot of um, it's like the proliferation of frameworks, like the CSS frameworks have helped out with the consistency as well. Right. The browsers have the support built in for a lot of like the neat CSS tricks that you can do. But mm-hmm. then also like, you know, a lot of people have adopted these frameworks and have that stuff built in as well. So it just really speeds up the design and development process. And yeah. then I could say like for people that are front end developers and they've moved over to just being a designer, it's always been easier to communicate with your edge partners too. Like so, when you need to go into engineering meetings as well, it's always refreshing to communicate in their language as much as you can, right? So it, it helps you out that way as well, career wise.
0: Mm. Now you've said that there's no better time to be a designer than now, and I feel like we may have kind of <laughs> talked about that a little bit now, just with yep. with tooling. But expand on that on that form. Expand on that thought. Yeah. So.
1: Let's say FigJam, uh, the collaboration tool within Figma, it has really opened up my world where like, I could send people uh, just a design, like an early design. They can go in there they can comment or we can comment live. The collaboration aspect, especially in the remote world, you know, obviously we're not all in the, you know, the same space, but it has been world changing to get early buy-in through you know, Figma, through sharing a link and even doing research. The tooling for research has been a lot better over the years. The last 10 years, it's it's improved greatly. And so speaking to that, yeah, it, it's just I'm all about like collaboration tools because we have to do a lot of like virtual brainstorm sessions or design sprints. And without having that mechanism, I'm not sure where we would have been today. You know, we could probably been doing design sprint in Google Sheets or something like that, right? Which would be terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is just been world-changing for me in terms of just building more like momentum and and getting buy-in. But also with prototyping, I'm a big fan of prototyping. And I do remember the days of like struggling for weeks and weeks through using like JavaScript and jQuery to do something relatively simple. Or maybe I had an idea that's kind of elaborate, but do not have the technical skills to to pull it off. So prototyping in Figma, origami and you know some of the other tools that are out on the market today. It's like you spend maybe an hour or two going over some tutorials and then all of a sudden you're, you're off to the races making like a really like a um, immersive, like native filling prototype uh, that you can view on your phone and even share it. So that's why I kind of like was saying, I'm so jealous of all the folks that are like becoming designers <laughs> now. <laughs> Cause they'll never know like the pain of taking like days or even weeks to do something really simple. And sometimes like it just ends up being like a throwaway thing.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, I didn't even touch on mobile, but you're like absolutely right about that. I mean, mobile is another thing where a bunch of different environments across different smartphones are going to render things differently. Like that's a whole other, that's a whole other part. I didn't even consider. I'd say also, you know, just education back in the day, a lot, I mean, none of this stuff was really online. We were all just sort of reverse engineering, And looking at, like, view source code and trying to figure stuff out. And, (laughs) you know, there were books that came along eventually because some people might have been a little bit ahead of the curve. But, like, you couldn't really go to school for this. And, I mean, now you have, you know, like, Treehouse and you've got Mm -hmm. General Assembly. And, like, you know, there's no shortage of Skillshare. There's YouTube videos. There's so much stuff now around education that just, you know, did not exist when we were trying to learn design Back then, especially if you were self-taught, like if you were self-taught, you really were self-taught because there were not even just these educational platforms to help you to figure this stuff out. You really were doing a lot of trial and error.
1: Yeah, great point. I don't know how I could even forget that because that was a a huge part of my life and career. And I felt like it, I took a long road to get to where I am because of that fact. You know, back in those days, there were very few tutorials online. You could find some Illustrator tutorials shockwave i'm trying to think of some other like macromedia products that cold fusion they they, they had tutorials fireworks yeah <laughs> you could you could find some like really like remedial tutorials out there but that was about it and so mm-hmm. in those early days i had to go to a bookstore and look at design magazines um i think <laughs> computer arts
0: was yeah kind of like godsend coming from yeah the,
1: I believe just published in the uk Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was it. It's like, you go to a bookstore and you get all these like design books and then I would get like some programming books just to, you know, see what's going on. But like you said, you maybe found a website that was cool and you got to go view source and like, okay, what's going on here? And then you try to break (laughs) it down. (laughs) Yep. So yeah, all this stuff that we have, like access to education and like just these online schools and I, I love it. I'm here for it. So yeah.
0: Yeah. I remember back in the day I used, God, what was it called? Dynamic Drive. Do you remember Dynamic Drive? No. So Dynamic Drive was the site that basically just had code snippets. Like they didn't really give tutorials. They kind of told you how to implement it. But like, say you wanted to, make it so someone couldn't right click on your website right That's you could go uh, to do you know.
1: yeah yeah you could yeah, go yeah. to
0: dynamic <laughs> drive and like find the code snippet copy it copy it paste it between the head tags and then all these different no Java one could right click yeah yep. yeah and they really tell you how it worked you just were like oh this can do this you there was a lot of trust I'll put it that way but <laughs> you weren't putting something there. you weren't putting something malicious in your site you would just oh copy paste that and – oh, God, what's the other one I used to use a lot? That was sort of more educational-based uh, that's mm-hmm. still around now called W3 Schools. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, W3 Schools. And I remember because I was also teaching design at the time. This was like 20 – God, what was this, 2011, 2012 maybe? And I remember mm-hmm. telling my students, like, don't use W3 Schools. They call themselves W3 Schools because it was WWW, but I think mm-hmm. folks also confused it with the W3C which is right. the World Wide Web Consortium. And I was a member of their web education group. And like, they would tell us, like, do not tell people to use W3 schools. This is not sanctioned by us. Like, it is not our <laughs> thing. But like, it was also still teaching people, like, it was teaching me how to use some of this stuff. But I would have to tell my students, don't use W3 schools. Like, think of it as a reference, but like, don't just copy and paste stuff from W3 schools and then turn it in as homework. Cause I'm gonna know that you did that <laughs> because I do that. So don't do that. <laughs>
1: Oh my goodness, man. I, yes, absolutely. It had totally, we said dynamic drive. I wouldn't even like, it didn't even ring a bell, but I remember using them to get a script to do the animated cursor.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, it,
1: it had all the types of weird, just, just weird things. It was almost like the dollar store for scripts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a dollar store. That's, that's a very, that's a very accurate Piece of comparison there. Back when HTML, I I think it was called DHTML back then? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. What a time. What a time. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone out there who's, they're hearing your story, they want to follow in your footsteps? What advice would you give them?
1: You know, as you're trying to figure out what aspect of design you may want to focus in, experiment, try it all. Uh, And as we were just talking about, like there's so many resources online where you don't even have to pay a penny to try something out. Right. But really just be curious on like how things are done, whether it's processes related to product design or maybe how to like run a design sprint, there's so much and you'll kind of eventually find your way. Some people generally know like, Hey, I'm not a great visual designer, but they want to get more into the UX of things. Right. And that's great too. So it's, all about kind of like figuring out your career path and what your passions are, what your strong suits are. You know, for me, I, I love product design, but I'm also like really heavily into like micro animation. So I lean towards these prototyping tools, but yeah, it's like sky's the limit. You know, that's kind of like the advice that uh, I would give them. And formal training. Like if you are able to get into a good school that has a great product design program, that is awesome. I know Carnegie Mellon has one, Tufts University has like an HCI class. I think most big universities these days probably have some facet of like a product design class, but then don't also have to go to a, a giant university for this type of an education. You know, like we already mentioned, it's all right there online. So yeah, just use the resources that are available to you.
0: Now I noticed that the, the URL to your website is uh, Pathstraightforward.com. What does path straightforward mean to you? Like in terms of your life and your career?
1: Yeah, so I trying to have a domain name that sounded relatively cool, and at first I'm like, ah, oh, this is not going to have any type of esoteric meaning or anything. But really, it just summarizes the journey that I took in order to get to where I am today. Because it was really long, it was hard, but I knew that I had a plan, and I just kind of stayed, you know, focused on on the journey and, and the path moving forward. So, and that's kind of what's gotten me here, and you know, I still have a long way to go.
0: Where do you see yourself in like the next five years? I mean, you've mentioned this kind of tour of duty that you've had around the Bay at these different companies and such. What does the future look like for you?
1: Uh, there's, there's a couple of things. I think I want to start to move uh, more towards like design systems because I really do enjoy working with my design systems uh, partners. And so over the years, I've had a number of like contributions to, to different systems that are available. But between that and mentorship, Becoming like a uh, having a stronger influence and mentoring younger designers. I mentioned that I was involved in a program here in Oakland, but it's really impactful when people can have someone that they can talk to and get career directional advice for their career. So I want to have more of a stronger influence in mentorship circles.
0: Now you know, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience where can they find out more information about you, your work, and everything? Where can they find that online? Yes,
1: yeah, so you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, so it's linkedin.com and it's my first and last name, Kevin Tucks. So feel free to connect with me. I am always willing to have a coffee chat with anyone that's curious about my background or just really general questions about design. And my website, since I've been employed for, <laughs> for so long, I've kind of taken down a lot of the work there, but also there are some uh, social links in there. You can reach out to me on my website and contact me directly.
0: All right. Sounds good. Kevin Tufts, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. You know, I mentioned this prior to us, uh, recording. We have a, a mutual colleague, Kim Hutchinson now. She was Kim Williams when I first interviewed her, but <laughs> Kim sang about your praises. I was like, you got to get Kevin on the show. He's such a cool guy. He's such a good guy. And I can <laughs> tell just from this conversation, like she's a hundred percent right. You're down to earth. You know, your stuff and, and like anyone, Anybody that I talk to that has been around since the early days of the web that has built stuff <laughs> from scratch is like automatically cool with me because you know the trenches that we've had to go through <laughs> to still yeah. be I wouldn't even say relevant. I want to say that, but like to go through the trenches to still be working and doing what we do now after yeah. 20 years is amazing. And I think you certainly built a fantastic career for yourself. And I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do along with the mentoring track and everything. So Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Maurice, thank you. And I really appreciate you having me on the show. And and it is awesome that you've got a platform that you can expose different types of people from various backgrounds. So yeah, man, kudos. I appreciate it.
0: Big, big thanks to Kevin Tufts. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kevin and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, Creative Excellence Without the Grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is R.J. Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you liked this episode, please let us know. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Revision Path, Or you could follow us on Spotify or Amazon Music. You could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Or leave us a voicemail message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.